Today's reading is taken from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, and that can be found on page 967 of the Pew Bibles. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. All right, thanks, Graham, and uh, good morning to everyone. Hope you're all doing well. Uh, my name's Scott, one of the ministers here. It's super good to be in church with you this morning. Yes, it is. I'm going to pray, and we're going to get right underway. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness, giving us each other, giving us this time, giving us your word, giving us yourself. We want to benefit from all those things, so please be at work in us uh, right now. Amen. Folks, there is this thing called uh, black ice. Black ice. And uh, actually, it's not black. That's the funny thing about it. But it's called black ice when a thin sheet of ice forms when kind of light rain or drizzle falls on a road surface at a temperature below, and that's usually well below freezing point, zero degrees. Because it's only thin, uh, black ice is highly transparent. It's very difficult to see compared to snow or slush or thicker ice layers. And it's all the more dangerous because it's hidden. It's hidden to drivers and motorcyclists when they head out on their journey. Here's the sign that means black ice. It looks like that. Apparently in the US, north of the US, it's a big problem. Uh, so much so that if you're an emergency doctor or nurse and you wake up and they're forecasting drizzle and they're forecasting temperatures of, let's say, um, 10 degrees below zero or lower, you know that you're going to have a very bad day. And I know this is true because I saw it on Grey's Anatomy on TV. <laughs> there is a thing called black ice and it's all the more dangerous because it's hidden. Now, there is a thing called black ice on our souls as well. And actually, it's idolatry, the devotion to anything other than God. When I say that, though, I'm not talking about the obvious idolatry, the kind of the worship of things made out of wood or stone or metal. I'm not talking about, you know, money, possession, stuff. 
I'm talking about hidden idolatry, the things in our hearts and the things in our culture that very subtly and very subconsciously lead our hearts away from God. Hidden, subtle, dangerous. They're like black ice on our souls. Now today we're going to be thinking about the competing ideas of worship and idolatry and see what insights that brings to our journey of Christian discipleship. And if you weren't uh, with us last week, we started our commitment series for 2015 called Walking with God. And, you know, there's uh, lots of events associated, like the Serve Manly uh, project that we're taking signatures for and the celebration dinner that we're taking signatures for and 24 hours of prayer on the board, all that sort of stuff. But essentially what we're saying is that the Christian life is a journey. It's a journey of faith heading towards our heavenly home. And uh, hopefully as you read through your devotional booklets during the week, and if you don't have one, pick one up on the way out. And maybe if you discuss them in your small groups, you've seen that it's a journey of faith with God as our Father, Jesus as our Savior, the Holy Spirit as our helper. But it is also a journey of the heart, which means we're often, we need to often ask ourselves, what holds the greatest affections in our hearts? What are our hearts most devoted to? What's the object of our worship? And that's what we're thinking about today. So first of them, we're going to see how Jesus navigated this tricky terrain. And uh, from Matthew chapter 4, I hope you have that open in front of you. We're going to see Jesus' resolute resistance of temptation. He resolutely resisted Satan. So let's go to the text of Matthew chapter 4. Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River at the end of chapter 3, declared by God the Father audibly to be his son with whom he's pleased. The Holy Spirit uh, anoints him in the form of a dove for his public ministry. And immediately, chapter 4, Jesus is led by that spirit into the desert or into the wilderness for a period of testing. Now, you see the mention of 40 days and 40 nights. It's, it's meant to prick our imagination and our memory. We're supposed to pick up that Jesus' time in the wilderness mimics Old Testament Israel's time in the wilderness in the book of Exodus, where they miserably failed to trust God. And the question we are being prompted to ask is, will Jesus, the Son of God, succeed where Israel, God's firstborn son from the Old Testament, failed? What's going to happen? And what we see is that he is tempted severely three times. Now, sometimes I think because it's Jesus and the language is kind of compact and it's terse, we just make the mistake of thinking Jesus' resistance was a cinch. Uh, it was easy. You ever been tempted by something for 40 days and 40 nights and not given in? You ever been tempted by something for 40 hours and not given in? Those of you that have ever gone sugar-free, Know how tempting it is when you're making afternoon tea for the kids and the bickies are there, right? It's not easy for Jesus to uh, resist this temptation. But he resolutely resists the temptations and he succeeds where Israel previously had failed in their time in the wilderness because he trusted in the grace of God that was available to him. So let's drill down a bit more closely. Firstly, he's enticed to provide for his physical comforts when he's extremely hungry. Then he's enticed to kind of prove his status. Have a look in verse 3. Have a look in verse 6. If you are the Son of God, says Satan, prove it by jumping off the high point of the temple, presuming that God will send his angels to the rescue. 
And then he's enticed to inherit all the kingdoms of the earth in the pain-free way, rather than ushering in the kingdom of God that would take him via the agony of death on a cross. Now, some folks, uh, you know, neat nicks, they, they like to try and neatly categorize this. So they will um, they'll say, you know, the first temptation appeals to kind of our physical urges, that sort of thing. And the second appeals to our natural desire for status. And the third appeals to our desire for possessions or power. And other folks try to categorize these temptations. They say, no, no, Jesus is here. He's, he's really rejecting all worldly expectations of who and what the Messiah would be and do. Okay, so he rejects the role of magician. Because in ancient times, magicians were, they would commonly try to change the substance of stuff. And he rejects the role of visionary, you know, kind of expecting God to back up his miraculous workings and claims. And he rejects the role of political revolutionary, hoping to gain the kingdoms of the world for the people of Israel. And you know what? I don't care. You choose. I really don't care. Uh, you choose whether those three temptations are representative of the temptations that are common to humans, physical urges, the desire for status, the desire for possessions and power, or you choose whether Jesus is rejecting all worldly tempta- uh, expectations of the Messiah, that he would be a magician, that he would be a deluded visionary, that he would be a political revolutionary. You choose whichever one you like. But here's one thing I do tell you. On each occasion, Jesus is being asked, what is your thing? What's your thing? What's going to be the thing you desire the most? What's the thing that you look to the most? What will be the object of your greatest affections? What will you look to for satisfaction and security? What will you be devoted to above all else? What will you worship Jesus? What is your thing? All the questions are the same. Will it be God or will it be something else? And, uh, you know, we've read Matthew 4, so you know that each time he chooses God. It will be God. It'll be God who supplies his need. He doesn't need to turn stones into bread. He will trust God rather than test God. He's going to dwell in relationship with God rather than using that relationship to prove his status by throwing himself off a tower. And he's going to walk with God. Via the agony of death on a cross to usher in the kingdom of God rather than cheaply receive the kingdoms of the world at the expense of his devotion and allegiance to God. It will be God. It will be nothing else. There is no black ice on his soul. But friends, today that question is being asked of each of us. Will God be our thing? Or will we give our devotion Will we give our affection? Will we give our satisfaction? Will we give our allegiance, our desires to something else, to the black ice of hidden idols? And so secondly for today, we need to look clearly at the black ice of idolatry. We want to define idols, and then we need to discover them or work out how to discern them in our own hearts. And then we want to try and dislodge them or dismantle them. So uh, to define idols, wouldn't you say... Wouldn't you say that an idol is pretty much anything that is more fundamental than God to our happiness, to our meaning in life, or to our identity? Wouldn't you say that? I mean, idolatry, it might involve devotion to bad things. That could happen. But usually it involves the making of a good thing into an ultimate thing. It's what uh, St. Augustine in the 4th century said or described as disordered desires. There's something wrong in the order. 
or inordinate desire for good things. You just want a good thing too much, it becomes a God thing. And, uh, you know, you think about idols, they could be personal things like academic or professional achievement or family or friends, your personal freedom, uh, your material possessions, maybe just your reputation as being, you know, that dependable person, someone who can be depended upon. Maybe it's being a person of power and influence. Maybe it's being the perfect parent. Maybe it's being the perfect child. Uh, maybe it's um, just seeking pleasures and going from one to the next to the next to the next. Maybe it's being an experience collector. You collect experiences. Uh, there's a TV add-on at the moment about being an experience collector. Maybe it's about collecting experiences as much as collecting material possessions or collecting status. Uh, it could be physical attractiveness, it could be romance, it could be human approval, it could be financial security, it could be your position or status within a business or a social circle or an institution. could be any of those things. could be all of those things. Uh, I think idols can be personal like those things, an individual, but they can also be kind of cultural and corporate. They can be the stories that our society tells us and sells us and says, give yourself to this thing or this program of things and you will find happiness, you will find security, you will find life. You know, study. And then work. And then marry. And then buy. And then breed. And then renovate. And then retire. And then travel. And you will have life. Could be that. So uh, now that we've kind of defined idols and got some idea of what's involved, the question is how do we discern them? How do we discover them in our own hearts, in our own lives? Especially because the idols with the real power aren't going to be the obvious things, are they? They're going to be the deep, subtle and subconscious things in our lives. You could pose a question like this to yourself. Has something or someone other than Jesus taken title to my heart's functional trust? Functional preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, delight. Someone, something else besides Jesus done that? Uh, maybe you could ask yourself the question, to who or what do I look to for life-sustaining stability or security or acceptance? Or what do I really want from life? What would make me really happy? What would make me really successful? What would make me really acceptable? Some people suggest using kind of um, problem emotions or negative emotions. They'll, they'll help you work out what your hidden idols are. And what that means is when you find yourself getting angry, ask yourself the question, why am I so angry at the moment? You know, my anger seems disproportionate to whatever. Uh, is there something that's become too important to me, too important in my life, something I'm telling myself I simply must have? Am I angry because someone's stopping me from getting it? Or circumstances are stopping me from getting it? Is there something I think is a necessity, but it actually isn't? Maybe it's not anger for you. Maybe it's worry. Uh, you know, uh, overly fear, uh, full or badly worried. And you ask yourself this question. Am I worried about losing something that has become actually way too important in my life? Am I scared because something is being threatened, which I think is a necessity, 
but it, but it actually isn't. Is that why I'm so worried all the time? I buried um, my grand last year. I appreciated her funeral. She lived till she was 94. But uh, I think she worried more than she lived. She worried about money. She worried about what people thought of her. <laughs> she worried if the food at the Sizzler Buffet had gone bad. It was always embarrassing. She'd take you to these places and then she'd sniff the food to see if it was still fresh. <laughs> Don't ever do that. It's very embarrassing for the people you take. And uh, she worried... Well, she didn't have anything in particular to worry about. She worried in general. And when she didn't have anything in general to worry about, she was worried about not worrying about anything. Now, she grew up through the Great Depression and um, World War II, and she had my dad when she was very young. And if you know my dad, that would be enough to make you worry as well. And I was trying to think about her life, and I was thinking, was her idol money? It's one of the things she worried about. But I don't think it was. I think her worry about money pointed to a deeper idol of control. She just wanted control. She wanted control of her place in the world. She wanted control of her finances. She wanted control even of the freshness of her food. And she could never find that control that she thought would make her happy in life. And so she worried all her life rather than trusting in God to supply all her need. Control was her idol. It was the black ice on her soul. It was hidden and it was dangerous. But the problem emotion of worry was the real giveaway. And you can use your problem emotions. That's one way to identify the hidden idols in your life. Maybe you should do that today. Another way you can identify your idols is to question your motivation for doing things. And I found this helpful because I've questioned, why do I pull back from difficult conversations? Why do I avoid some confrontations? Why do I find that I've really got to G myself up before making that tricky phone call? And what I've realized is that human approval is my hidden idol. It's the black ice on my soul. I really want you to like me. And I'm terrified that you won't. I think I need your approval or human approval in order to give my life significance. And that hidden idol stops me from doing things that I ought to do saying things that I ought to say. And it makes me want to be good at my job for all sorts of wrong reasons. And it sounds pathetic because it is pathetic. And it's entirely ridiculous because what, after all, is your approval, humbly and respectfully, what, after all, is your approval or human approval generally when my Heavenly Father approves of me, not because of my performance, but because of the performance of His Son in my place for me. It's pathetic, and it's stupid, and it's dangerous, all the more dangerous because it's hidden. Well, that is uh, my black ice. What about you? What do your problem emotions, what do your motivational drives suggest to you are hidden idols as you walk with God? What do they reveal are more fundamental than him to your happiness, to your meaning in life, to your identity? Where do they show up the black ice of idolatry on your heart? Might need to do some soul searching this afternoon. It'd be time well, well spent, wouldn't it? So we've defined idols and uh, we've thought about how to discern them or discover them in our own hearts We've got to finish today by thinking about how to dismantle them, how to dislodge them. And we dismantle idols, the black ice on our souls, with the bright wonder of worship. 
the, the third thing for today is the bright wonder of the worship of God. And this is totally where Jesus lands on all three occasions in Matthew 4. God will supply all his need, so he doesn't need to turn stones into bread. God is his all in all, and he doesn't need to throw himself off a tower to prove it. God's plan and mission and kingdom surpasses all the kingdoms of the world. So why would Jesus take up Satan's offer and switch his allegiance from God, even if it does involve the agony of the cross? The bright wonder of worship where God is our all in all. That will dismantle the black ice of idolatry from our hearts. Now the question is, how do we put it to work in our lives? And I've got three quick possibilities. I'm sure there's more. Three quick possibilities. The first one is, we need to preach to ourselves. We need to preach to ourselves. Think back in Matthew 4, when Jesus responds to each of Satan's temptations with Scripture, we sort of think that he's just really good with comebacks. He's kind of like one of those comedians, you know, where someone heckles him, and he's just really quick, quick-witted. Turn these stones into bread. Ah, man does not live on bread alone. Gotcha, Satan. That's what we think. I wonder, though, whether each time Jesus quotes Scripture, he's preaching as much to his own heart as he is rebuking Satan. I wonder if he's reminding himself that God is his all in all, that it's God's word that sustains him, that he can trust God's goodness, and there is only one who is worthy of his affections and his trust and his devotion. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only, says Jesus, quoting very famous words from Deuteronomy. God alone is worthy of worship, and we need to preach that to ourselves, often, using the words of Scripture, just like Jesus did. Second possibility is that we need to rejoice with other believers. We preach to our own hearts Then we rejoice with other believers. We join with other hearts and we rejoice. Now, of course, that word worship there, it's got a range of meanings, you know. So for some people, they think it means uh, singing. Uh, Others think of it um, as kind of the whole Sunday gathering, whatever day of the week you meet. Uh, We know from Romans 12 that uh, Scripture uh, thinks of worship as including all of our lives offered to God. But let me tell you, there is something strange Wonderful and strange that it happens when we gather together in worship on Sundays or whatever day of the week it is. Because as we express our joy and our contentment in Jesus, we start, we start unscrewing and dismantling the idols of our hearts. When we sing and we pray together, we remind each other that we are so known and so loved by God that the bright wonder of worship moves our hearts to want to love Him and to want to know Him in return. Now let me be very clear. We don't worship our way up to God. He comes down to us, preeminently in the person of Jesus. And then he meets with us through his word, the very same word that Jesus quotes there in Matthew chapter 4. He comes down. We don't worship our way up to God. But as you sing and as you pray, you're speaking into my life. Did you realize this? And you are saying, Scott, that idol of human approval is pathetic and it's ridiculous, it's stupid, and it's dangerous. Or that idol of control or personal freedom or trying to be the perfect parent, trying to be the perfect child or financial security or self-actualization or the better homes and gardens, beautiful life or whatever it is. Pathetic and ridiculous and stupid and dangerous when you can love God and be loved by him. We sing and we pray and we speak to one another. And do you know what we're doing? We are cajoling one another gently, saying, 
dismantle the idols of your heart and worship God. Why would you ever want to be just a pleasure seeker, just an experienced collector, when you can be a God lover? That's what we're doing. We rejoice together. We express those deep truths, and, and they, um, it starts to impress upon our hearts, doesn't it? We find ourselves doing what we're praying, doing what we're singing, doing what we're hearing from the Scriptures. We find ourselves wanting to serve God and God alone. The expression of worship makes an impression on our souls, and it moves from being words to a lived-out reality. We find that we really love God and we see more clearly than perhaps at any other time of the week how pathetic and ridiculous and dangerous are the hidden idols of our hearts and our culture. And so giving ourselves fully to the time that we have together here, you know, with all the parking hassles and, you know, children hassles and worry of the week, giving ourselves fully to the time we have here, well, that's no small thing as we journey together with God. So we preach to ourselves, and we rejoice with each other. And I think the last thing I'd want to say, I mean, there are just three possibilities, but the last thing I'd want to say is we replace our deepest affections. Funny thing about this organ is that it's made to worship. You know that. You get that. The question is not whether or not we will worship someone or something. The question is who or what will we worship? Because our hearts are made to worship. And what this means is that it will be insufficient to just dismantle the idols of our hearts and our culture unless we replace them with something or someone who is utterly worthy of our greatest affection. You know this Christian life, this journey, this walk we are on, it's not just a worldview. It's not just a way of seeing the world and our place within it. It's not just a sin management program where we make mistakes and we beg God for forgiveness and we feel less bad about them. It's not merely a set of doctrinal beliefs, though it incorporates a worldview and it does deal with our sin and it includes doctrinal beliefs. But at its very heart, our walk with God is all about the heart. It's about giving our hearts to the incomparable God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one who made us and knows us and loves us, the one who showed us the full extent of his love for us when he came down to us, the Lord Jesus Christ, and lived the life that we couldn't live. That's what Matthew 4 is all about. And then died the death that we deserved on the cross in our place for our sins so that we could be in relationship with him. It's all about the heart. And so as we finish, let me say, I uh, often I walk out along that pavement that way. And uh, I stand and look out at Manly Beach. Uh, yesterday I was sitting on it and just enjoying everyone else enjoying it and thinking this is a spectacularly beautiful place, isn't it? You know, it's not even a shadow not even a speck of dust upon the beauty and the wonder of God. 
And if we are going to dismantle the hidden idols in our lives, that black ice, which are all the more dangerous for being hidden, we will need to preach to ourselves and we will need to rejoice with one another. But our hearts are made to worship, so more than anything we need to replace the deep affections of our heart with him. Beautiful, wonderful, worthy of all that we are and all that we have and all of our desires and all of our affections. Because friends, in one way or another, this very day, in our little lives, we are offered the kingdoms of the world. And today we are being urged to respond with the very same words of Jesus. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And may God be our all in all. Here's what we're going to do. We are all going to stand up in a moment and we're going to have an all-in response kind of prayer. Now the 8 o'clockers do it every week because they're legends and we hardly do it at all. So we're going to do it today. Uh, I'll show you what it looks like actually. It's going to look like this. It's from Psalm 96, so it's got to be good, right? I'm going to say like the first line that's got an S. See the S? That's me, Scott. The U, that's you. It's in bold. Okay, so I say the S line, you say the U line. Okay, that's how it's going to work. Nikki and the band, why don't you guys come on up because once we're finished with Psalm 96, we'll go straight into song or whatever else you guys want to do. Can I say if there's just... Anything that you think, I need prayer for this right now, when we start singing the song, come down the front and get prayed for. If there's something you go, I need to talk to someone about this this very day, come down the front during the song. Now, there'll be a bunch of people here. In fact, uh, as the song starts, the prayer team's going to come down to the front here and you can go find one of them. You need to stand up and we're going to say the words of this psalm together. Now, I'm counting on you not to leave me hanging. But we are saying these words to God, so let's go. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord Lord and bless his holy name. Declare his glory among the nations. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. As for the gods of the nations, they are mere idols. Majesty and glory are before him. Glory to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We are going to sing. Thank you to the, uh, the musicians. This will be our collection song. Please come down and get some prayer if you would like it.